I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1218. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. You're about to see me transform into a puddle over the next wee while. Uh, this morning, we are thinking about identity. This morning, we are thinking about our, our identity. Our identity is our controlling self-understanding. Identity is our controlling self-understanding. Identity, in other words, is how we view ourselves, view and understand ourselves, and how that informs how we live. So, trivial example, but Babe in the movie Babe is a pig, but he believes, understands, views himself as a sheepdog. So, he lives out his identity by sheeping dogs, herding sheep. Knowing your identity is so, so important. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who is a philosopher, said that a loss of identity or an identity crisis is the hardest loss to spot, but it is the most detrimental. So, for example, you would notice the loss of a limb, but the loss of a limb would not compare to a loss of identity. For an identity is like two features of a boat. It's like an anchor. It holds you in place in the storms of life. And it's like a rudder. It guides and directs where you go. Now, the world we live in, the culture we live in, tells us this is a sort of a, well, 
a generalization, of course, that our world tells us that there are three main ways to find your identity. First way, you are who others say you are. Your family, your friends, your colleagues define who you are. Second way the world tells you to find your identity, you are what you do. Your grades, your job, your activities define you. You are what you do. Third way, you are who you say you are. You define who you are. No doubt you've all encountered that in the world that you live in. And perhaps you know firsthand just how fragile, just how uncertain those ways of finding identity are. For if you're defined by what other people say, what happens if they say awful things about you? What happens if those people move away or pass away? If you're defined by what you do, what happens whenever you fail and fall flat on your face? What happens whenever you make a mistake? What if you're defined by who you say you are and you have no idea who you are? What do you do? There's a far, far better way to find your identity. You are who God says you are. You are who the creator of the universe says you are. You are defined not by what you do, but by what Jesus has done for you. Jesus gives you your identity. This morning, we're focusing in particularly on verses 9 to 10, because they teach us all about the identity available to us. So we're going to take verses 9 to 10 and squeeze them for all they're worth for about 45 to 50 minutes. Uh, so I should have taken a picture. Some of your faces told the story there. So let's look at our identity the first part of our identity we find in verse 9 is, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. We've seen this throughout First Peter, haven't we? This idea of being chosen. The Bible tells us that the one who chose where to put every star in the sky, who chose where to put every boundary of the sea, who chose where every mountain would rise up from the ground, he chose you. Yeah, incredible, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you can know that God has chosen you, which of course means that he could have not chosen you. That's what we see in verse 8, isn't it? That those who aren't Christians aren't chosen by God. This, of course, is a tricky concept to wrap our heads around, but it's helpful to remind ourselves of our immense privilege. This is to humble you into the ground, not to puff you up, not to puff out your chest. We remind ourselves that we aren't God, God's the one who chooses, not us. So don't pick and choose. Don't act like you are God and you know who is chosen and who is not. This idea of choosing is always meant to humble us. It's never meant to puff us up. Let's keep going. You may have noticed in the title that I like the ESV's more literal translation here, which says, but you are a chosen race. Peter says to his readers that they are a chosen race. In the church that he is writing to, as in our church, you'll notice that there is not one race here. For God does not choose one race. He is choosing for himself a race which is of every tribe, nation, and tongue, which means the identity of God's people should be a diverse one, full of lots of different shapes, cultures, backgrounds, economic backgrounds, social backgrounds, all sorts. For the church should be representative of God's heart for the nations. The church should be representative of God's heart for the nations. It should grow in that more and more over time. Think about what an anchor this must have been for Peter's readers. 
to be reminded that first and foremost, their identity is not on their race, ethnicity, skin color, economic background. Their identity, first and foremost, is in the fact that Almighty God has chosen them. In a world that's so broken, so ravaged by sin, where people discriminate, abuse, and reject people for their race, God does not do that. He condemns that. Like Jesus, he was rejected by human beings, but chosen by God. If human beings reject you for your race, remind yourself that you are chosen by God. You are precious in his sight. Your race does not define you. You are who God says you are. That's what's so good about a Sunday morning, isn't it? Whenever the church gathers, they gather to declare the praises of him who called them out of darkness into his wonderful light. Every Sunday, we look around and remind ourselves of who God says we are. We are not defined by what the world says. In our songs, prayers, sermons, communion, we spend time reminding ourselves that God has chosen us. Which is why, it's why church isn't five minutes. We need time to declare who God says that we are in every aspect of the service. We are, you are this morning, a chosen race. And you are a chosen race who has been shown mercy. You have been shown mercy. Look down at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've already thought about that idea of mercy, haven't we? The idea of mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you are someone who has been given mercy. You have received mercy. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can receive mercy from the creator of the universe. What does mercy look like? Jesus gives us a helpful story of the Good Samaritan. It's a helpful example of what mercy looks like. Uh, You read it in Luke chapter 10, uh, if you want to give it a read later. In the story, we find a, a Jewish man traveling on his way and he's, he's, he's brought upon by uh, robbers who ambush him, beat him within an inch of his life, strip him, and leave him for dead. Two people walk by, a Levite and a priest, two people you would expect to help, and they don't fancy helping. And then the least likely person to help, a Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews, a mudblood per se, uh, acts in an extraordinary way. He's filled with compassion. He treats and binds the the half-dead man's wounds, sets him on his animal, and walks him to an inn and takes care of him. Whenever he leaves the inn, he gives money to the innkeeper and says, anything you spend, if it's more than what I've given you, I will give you more when I return. Friends, that's a picture of mercy. The Bible paints us in that light. Left for dead, hopeless, no resources, enemies of God, not deserving of kindness. And the Lord shows compassion to us. He shows us mercy. Friends, let this be the central operating system of your life. Remind yourself of this every day, that you are someone who has received mercy. You are a pitied people this morning. (laughs) You ask the question, don't you? Surely that will make me miserable. Surely that is just awful self-esteem day of thinking, oh, I, I did not deserve mercy. Surely that will make me miserable. Well, I don't think so. On the contrary, I think that will make you an incredibly magnetic person, for you will be a thankful person. Peter's readers, we've said it, haven't we? We're suffering terribly. 
I think this is actually what makes sense of what we find in chapter one, isn't it? How we can rejoice in the midst of trials. Because trials so often mean loss, don't they? Loss of face, loss of opportunity, loss of friends or family. And yet think about it. Whenever a Christian experienced loss in their life, they can remember, there's one thing I can't lose. It's God's mercy. You can never, ever lose God's mercy by what you do. No one can ever take that away from you, for you never, ever earned it. You never won it. You never did enough things to earn that mercy. You were hopeless, left for dead, no resources. Friends, you have been shown incredible mercy this morning. Your identity is in Christ, in the fact that he showed you mercy. I deserve so much worse, and yet I have received so much more than what I could ever imagine. Hallelujah, surely. The fiery trials that a Christian encounters, it's an opportunity to be pushed further into your living hope. Your trials don't define you. Jesus does. It gives you an opportunity to declare the praises of him who has shown you such mercy. You're not defined by your losses. You're not defined by your mistakes. You're defined by the mercy that God has shown to you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, you're God's special possession. The the imagery and words that Peter uses here are saturated with meaning because they're taken from the Old Testament. Peter makes himself a wee bit of a sandwich here. So Isaiah 43 verses 20 and 21 are the bread and then Exodus 19 verses 5 to 6 are the filling and together it makes what we read here. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession to declare God's praises. Interesting, I hear some of you say, so what, some of the others say? Great question. Well, it reminds us, doesn't it, that God's church, God's people, God's special possession did not begin in the 21st century in Cardiff. The identity that Jesus won for you has its roots all the way back to Sinai. Peter says to his readers that you are part of a community of faith that has always been exiles in this world. God's people have always not fitted in in this world. They've been able to endure that exile, that rejection of the world, by reminding themselves that whilst the world does not see you as special, the creator of the cosmos does. God's view of you does not change like people's view of you. It doesn't go up and down. It's eternal, for he is eternal. He will not change his mind. You are his. You are his special possession. Nothing you can do will ever change that. Not feeling special this morning? Later, as we take the bread and the wine, consider. You are a treasured special possession. For Jesus shed his blood and his body was broken for you. That is truth that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're struggling with subjective feelings, remember the objective truth that Jesus' precious blood was spilt for you. Taste and see that he is good this morning during communion. Now, now, how might this heartwarming truth affect our hands and our feet then? Well, let's think about it. If you possess something, it means you own it, right? Which means if you are a Christian, you are God's possession. He owns you which means he owns everything that you own. (laughs) The three T's, your talent, your time, and your treasure, they're all his. He's just leasing it out to you. How will you use that?
for his glory? How will you use the time, the talent, the treasure to declare his praises to this dark and lost world? God has always used his people to do incredible acts. He wants to use you, the Bridge Church, to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What might God this morning be asking you to do with your time, your talents, and your treasure? I wonder. You are not who you say you are. You are who God says you are. You are his special possession. Next, you are holy. Now, one of the ways the people of Israel and now the church would have been recognized as God's special possession would have been by their holy living. We thought about this last week, didn't we? Whenever we read a holy nation, we are to remember that the people of Israel were to be distinct and different from the world around them for the sake of the world around them. The church is to be different from the world for the sake of the world. This is why church is different from what you find outside We represent God to this dark world. If we're just like the world, what is so special about us? The world should see that we bear that family resemblance we thought about last week. Whenever you do not act in a holy way, you're not living out your true identity, friends. You're walking contradiction. You've been set apart to be distinct, to be different from the world we live in. And yet, how we long to fit in, don't we? How we long to fit in, to walk that wide road that everyone else is walking. We're to be distinct. We're to be different. Whenever in my mind I think, oh, this might come across a bit awkward or a bit weird. That is not me living out my true identity. That is me conforming to the world. Whenever I have a thought, oh, I should pray for that person. I think, oh, no, that would be weird. That's not the Holy Spirit in me. That is me shirking away from my true identity. Peter reminds us of who we are this morning, that you are a holy nation heading towards a holy home. So live for that home, and let's bring as many people with us as possible. Now, what might that holy living look like? Well, in the next few weeks, we're entering into the household codes, where we will learn a bit about what it looks like to live holy lives, and it is a distinctly different way of living from the world. And we, we, th- we hear that, don't we? And think, okay, different from the world. That must have been worse, right? But God's word's good, isn't it? So his way of living is the best way to live. What we will see in the next few weeks is God's design for human flourishing. We need to remind ourselves when we come to hard passages, don't we? We're to live distinctly different from the world around us, which means we do not withdraw from the world. In the coming weeks, we'll read examples from Peter talking about living under unjust bosses, for example. It means being abused by people who don't share our faith, which assumes, doesn't it, that we are actively involved in our world and in our community, and we are living differently. It's tough, isn't it? We're not called to be a holy huddle. To, to shirk and shrink back from the world. We are to be actively engaged and rubbing shoulders with those who do not share our identity for their good, for their sake. Christians, we are not to withdraw from the world. And it is so easy, oh, preaching to myself, it is so easy to fill up our diaries with Christian things, which means we are totally withdrawn from the world. That's something I need to pray about. I'm sure that's what many of us need to pray about. 
Friends, this morning, don't listen to what your conscience tells you whenever you think you're being weird. Don't listen to that voice in your head. You are holy. You are God's. Live out that identity. Next and finally, you are a royal priest. Now, whenever we read the word royal before priest, Peter is communicating to every Christian of the unique privilege and access that they have to the true and great king. Now, now consider, he's writing to servants, he's writing to the lowest people on the food chain of that time. The people have no access to anything, and he reminds them that they have access to the highest authority in the universe. Once they were far off from God with no access, and now they've been brought near. This morning, if you are a Christian, you have access to the God of the universe. You have access to the highest authority in all the universe, which means you can do the greatest good in all the universe by speaking to him. The sad thing is for many of us, whenever we think about it, the idea of getting access to God, we would far rather, wouldn't we, have access to our favorite celebrity or sports player than to God. We think, oh, I, I need access to someone who's significant, who can help me make a difference in this world. You have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What are we, what are we doing? What, what's going on in our minds when we don't remember this? Friends, we think far, far too little of who God is and what Jesus has won for us, this incredible access. You are a royal priesthood. Now, the priesthood in the Old Testament were to do several things. They were to represent God, and they were to offer sacrifices to God. Let's think about those two things. We've already thought, haven't we, about our personal holiness, how we represent God to the world, how we are an image, a picture, a snapshot. Jean-Marc said, a walking epistle. That was really good. That was much better than mine. You are a walking epistle of what God is like to the people you're in the world with. So we represent God to the world, and we represent the world to God. Now, that word represent means to uh, be entitled to speak or act on behalf of someone, which means you have the responsibility, nay, the duty to come before the Lord of the universe and speak to him about this dark and broken world that you inhabit. We're to bring our prayers to the king of the universe every single day. This is an opportunity This is a responsibility. This is a blood-bought gift of the Lord Jesus to do what verse 5 tells us, to ask God to take human beings, living stones, and build them into an eternal temple. Friends, it is an incredible opportunity to pray. We, We think too little of it, don't we? Whenever we see that notification pop up or that email and we read prayer meeting, oh, so often we're like, ugh, would rather not. This is, this is Dave's mind, just, I'm not saying this is anyone here. Ugh, could not be bothered. Would rather do anything else. Oh, it's, it's sweaty, it's warm. Would rather be any, anywhere else. Friends, we have such an opportunity to pray at so many different occasions in this church. Before the service at 9.30, during our service, during life groups during the week, during our monthly prayer meetings, during the missionary prayer meetings, when you get the prayer email, you have an opportunity to take those things, the needs of this world, and present it to the court of heaven, the one person who can transform this dark and broken world. Oh, when we view it that way, what an opportunity it is to pray. Corporate or individual, 
Anytime you pray, it is an incredible gift and you're doing something so, so meaningful. We see it here, don't we, on a Sunday morning after the service, people talking about how their weeks have been and then immediately saying, why don't we pray about that? I would love to pray about that. We see people living out their identity when they hear the problems that their brothers and sisters are facing and then immediately praying. For we are all priests. The elders aren't special. Their prayers don't get special access to God. You are all royal priests. So live that out after church on a Sunday morning. Next part of being a priest is to offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. This is uh, Paul's language in Romans 12, verse 1. That in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that the Lord Jesus has done for you, Christians, you get to offer your whole life as worship to God. Worship isn't just something that happens on a Sunday. You know, it's, it's not just 10 to 11, and if you're really unlucky, 11.30. All of your life is worship. For Peter's readers, this must have been transformative, surely, that as they serve their harsh, oppressive masters, as they do that, they're serving the true and great master. Their lives are worship in the most mundane tasks of life. That was good news for them then, and it's good news for us now, because we live in a world where it's all about performance. It's all about plastering over social media the incredible things that you have done. And yet, the most ordinary, the most mundane things of life are spiritual worship. They matter so much, friends. Changing those nappies, treating the patients, doing the homework, playing your sport, cutting the grass, it can all be worship for there is no wasted moments in service of our Lord. Isn't that what we've been encouraged in as we've heard about this time tomorrow? People using their gifts as spiritual worship to God being light in the darkness, declaring God's praises as they do in that for God's glory. Incredible, right? Spiritual worship. You are not wasting your gifts, your talents, your degrees, raising little ones. That is a worthy thing to do. That is an incredible privilege that God has given you little ones to care for. That is spiritual worship, friends. It, it doesn't have to be flashy. It doesn't have to be glamorous. It can be the ordinary, everyday things. And as you live out that priestly calling, you are declaring to the world that your God has shown you incredible mercy, that he has chosen you, that he's kind to you, that you are a royal priesthood. No moment of worship is wasted in God's sight. In that moment, whenever you're struggling with the mundane, I struggle with this so much, in the moments when you're doing a job you don't want to do, you have an opportunity to give thanks to God that he has given you the gifts and abilities to be able to do that thing. He's given you the opportunity to be in a school when so many people in this world are not in a school. You have that little one when so many people would love to have that little one. Ask him for his help to view every area of your life as worship, for you are a priest by royal decree. As we close, as we thought about our identity in Jesus, why don't I just read verses 9 and 10 to you again and just in the quietness in your heart, ask for God's help to live out that identity in this dark world you live in. Let, let's pray. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Oh Lord, would you help us? Lord, the spirit is willing, but the body is so weak. Would you help us live out this incredible identity that you have won for us, purchased for us, given to us as a gift by the broken body and blood of your son, the Lord Jesus. Would you help us now as we respond in worship to you, our great, mighty, and kind King? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.